Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. Go with me, please, to Acts chapter 17. I've got some questions for us this morning. Where do you start when God is a generic word and truth is determined by the individual? Now, when it seems like people have heard it all before, In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Athens. This is the cultural and philosophical center of Paul's day. He is surrounded by the greatest artists and thinkers and philosophers of his time, but he's also surrounded by thousands upon thousands of idols, idols that are deeply troubling to Paul. You see, he knows that they are a gross distortion. They are a mere caricature at best of the living God. He knows that the God of creation is the passionate seeker who has made a way for us to seek and to know him. And so Paul begins with a much-needed introduction to this living God. Let's explore it together here in Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius 
the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. That you would, by your grace, put your, your finger on our own misconceptions, on ways that we have maybe held on to things about you that just aren't true, caricatures, distortions. Lord, we pray that you would, by your grace, help us to see who you really are and what it means for our lives here and now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, three things I pray we see here in this text. First, a deeply troubling sight, a deeply troubling sight, and the decision to do something about it. And number two, a much-needed introduction. And number three, a deeply personal invitation and the decision to do something about it. First, a deeply troubling sight. Here Paul is in the city of Athens, surrounded by the greatest thinkers of his time, politicians, artists, scientists, all gathered there in this beautiful city. Tourists would have traveled there to see and experience its beauty. I mean, the art and architecture alone would cause anyone to stand in awe, and still does today. One person sarcastically said, it's easier to find a God in Athens than a man. You see, as Paul was waiting for his friends Silas and Timothy to arrive in the city, he looked around and he was deeply troubled. He was provoked, exasperated by what he observed. You ever been there? Now, maybe not in the city of Athens, but have you ever been so disturbed by something you observed? And it, it not only upset you, it motivated you to do something about it. Maybe it was an injustice of some kind. You knew that there was no way to tackle the issue all by yourself. That didn't matter. You were so stirred up, and so you, you, stepped, you stepped out, and you spoke up. You rolled up your sleeves, and you got involved. You were willing to do something about the brokenness that you were observing. And so I want you to picture the Apostle Paul waiting for his friends to arrive in the city of Athens. He's walking around, and his heart starts to beat harder, and he's looking around. His adrenaline starts rushing through his body, and his eyes start to fill with tears, and he's bothered. He is bothered by what he sees. He's brokenhearted. He's upset. He's sad. The word is provoked. He sees humans made in God's image dishonoring God by doing the opposite of what they were actually created for, and it breaks his heart. God is, is being dishonored there in the city of Athens, and Paul knows the consequences of that are terrifying, and so he is disturbed. There's a lot for us to learn here. I want us to think about this. Before we speak of Jesus here in the city of St. Pete, before we speak of Jesus here in this Tampa Bay area, we need to first see and feel. Before we speak, we need to first see and feel. What do you see? What do you feel? You might say, Darren, this isn't Athens. I know. When you walk around this city, this beautiful city, are you closing your eyes to the idolatry of this city? Please don't go about your day ignoring the belief systems of our city. Learn from them, engage them, ask questions, listen, but grieve as well. Be saddened by them. 
Be saddened by the spiritual darkness of our city because it is an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't draw up a sign and stand on the street corner yelling at every passerby. It's not what he does. He's grieved. He's brokenhearted. It's heavy. He's upset by what he sees and what, what he knows. Uh, it, really, th- these people in front of him that are, that are just giving themselves to false gods and idols, he, he knows there's something better, and so he's frustrated. And what does he do? It says that he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Now, we looked at that word reasoned last Sunday, but I want us to look at it again briefly. It literally means to say it thoroughly. To enter discussion, it involved hearing objections, it involved answering questions, it involved interpreting or opening up scripture and inviting others to see what's there. That's that's our responsibility here and now in this beautiful city to to reason with others, to help help come alongside others, listen to their objections, hear their questions, not be threatened by their, their belief systems at all. It doesn't change what is true about Jesus. And then open up the scriptures. And help them to see what we believe is true about God and about his son. And this is what Paul is doing in the synagogue. And that was his custom. What we see in Athens is that he's also doing it in the marketplace. This is the famous Agora, the public square of Athens. This is a marketplace of goods and of ideas. And so it would have been normal for uh, just a a normal sight to see someone uh, standing there in the marketplace uh, declaring or inviting others to hear uh, what he has to say and arguing and debating and reasoning. And he goes there every day and he's with those who just happen to be there. I love that. That's what it says. He's there every day with those who happen to be there. He doesn't, uh, you know, establish this big event and think, okay, we've got to set everything up just right. No, he just goes. He goes. And so wherever we go, whether it's the campus or our workplace or our neighborhood, who, who happens to be there? Who are we reasoning with? Who are we inviting to see the living God for who he is? Who are we entering discussion and conversation with, having thoughtful dialogue with? So here he is. He couldn't stay quiet. He couldn't stay still. He couldn't just wait for his friends to arrive. He was too provoked, too upset, too moved. Here he is at the heart of the intellectual center of the ancient world, and he's reasoning with its people about ultimate truth. He's bringing them to Jesus through thoughtful dialogue and debate. I love it. And he encounters this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who begin to dispute or converse with him. Now, the Epicureans, their whole idea was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. That's what they believed. If it feels good, then do it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. They were deists of sort. Uh, God is uninvolved. He's irrelevant. We can just go about our lives. And then you have the Stoics. What will be, will be. Life is determined by fate. Live in harmony with nature and reason, however painful that might be. They were pantheists of sorts. The universe is an expression of God. Look inward to find hope. Encourage yourself with self-sufficiency. These were the two philosophical uh, groups that were engaging Paul in the marketplace. Now, both of these groups would say that all you can really know is the here and now. People were deeply influenced by, by these schools of thought then 
and they still are today. I mean, this is secularism at its, at its core. YOLO, you know, you only live once. It's searching for meaning in the temporal. And these, these groups, these schools of philosophical thought in verse 18, they say, what is this babbler? What is this babbler saying? This is slang. It's derogatory. Babbler. It means one who picks up seeds or scraps, literally a word scatterer. He's making no sense. What is this babbler saying? This guy. They're filled with suspicion and accusation. Paul's misunderstood as well. They think he's preaching two divinities, Jesus and the female counterpart, the resurrection. So he's greatly misunderstood. Here he is engaging and debating and reasoning. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, they couldn't agree on ultimate reality and truth. And it brought Athens into an age of skepticism. That's where they were. That's where we are today. An age of skepticism. Cynicism everywhere. Suspicion and distrust I mean, church, you don't have to look far to find a skeptic in your own life. Maybe a science buff who says evolution disproves the Bible, or a friend who rejects God because her father abused her, or a family member who doesn't believe in God because he didn't answer my prayers, or a coworker who says nothing exists beyond what we can see, or how about the teacher who boasts that all religions lead to and promote the same thing, or a neighbor who might say, who might struggle with a God who would even allow any evil to take place on this planet. Or a friend who would say, you can't know anything with certainty. And they're certain about it. Eventually, the Apostle Paul is, is brought, he's invited to bring this formal presentation to the Areopagus, this council of philosophers. This is 50 yards from the Parthenon. Uh, there is this large rock where there, was, there is a temple uh, to the god Ares, Greek, or Mars, uh, the Roman god, the god of war. This is the hill of Ares, Mars Hill, the Areopagus. It was a place to dispute, a place of debate, a place to hold trials. And this is where he's brought. So he's brought to the intellectual and philosophical um, council of his day. And what does he say? What would you say? Well, that leads to point number two, a much-needed introduction. Let's look again in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Understatement of the year. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this, this I proclaim to you. Okay, so imagine we're in conversation together and someone I know comes up and stands beside me. You don't know this person at all. You've never met them. It would be very odd for me not to introduce you. It would be rude. It would be, just, it would be rude. That person might at some point be like, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so. An introduction in that in that case, it just makes sense for me to introduce the person who's come into the conversation. An introduction makes sense in this moment. Paul is given a platform, and an introduction makes sense to the living God. He knows that it's time for an introduction. In verse 22, 
He's saying, I can see in every way that you're very, you're very religious, or really the idea is superstitious. He observed also an altar as, as he was looking around the city and he saw the many idols. He observed one in particular with this inscription, to the unknown God, to the unknown God. And he jumps on this opportunity. He says, what you worship as unknown, well, this is what I've come to proclaim to you. He isn't saying that they've been worshiping the one true God all along unconsciously. It's not what he's saying. He's emphasizing what they don't know and what they admit they don't know. They, they've admitted, just in case, or we're going to cover ourselves in case there's a God out there we haven't uh, addressed or recognized. We're, we're going to cover ourselves. People are still doing this today. Maybe you've heard someone say, maybe you yourself would say, well, I, I believe in a higher power. I believe in something greater than me. I don't know what he, she, or it is, but I, I believe in a higher power. We're kind of covering ourselves, this just in case. Some in our day and in that day might, might think, hey, we, we don't know, we, we can't know. And they might like that because it gives them the freedom to live out from under the authority of what they could possibly know. Or others might say, we don't know, but I'd love to know if we could. And, and, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I, I don't know, but I'd love to know if I could. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what worldview you're embracing. Notice where he doesn't start. He doesn't start with Jesus. In verse 24, he speaks of God as creator and Lord of all. He has to bring def definition to the generic word God in their culture. So many gods, I mean, the word has lost all meaning. Who is God? Truth being determined by the individual. But Paul comes in and he says, listen, let, let, let me show you. You say you don't know that there's this unknown God potentially out there. Let me, the one that you say is unknown, let me, let me show him to you. And so he begins to describe God. And he speaks of God as creator and Lord of all. This isn't your local synagogue. In your local synagogue where you have Jews and God-fearers, Greeks that were embracing Judaism, they, they started with the scriptures, with the God of Israel. They were looking, they were monotheists. They were looking to one God. But here, he's, he's before the Areopagus. And so his approach is going to be a bit different. And by the way, ours should be different depending on on the audience. We need to listen and observe. <laughs> he says this, God doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in temples. He isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need a thing from you. He's the author of life. That's who God is. And then he reaches back into the storyline of scripture. He reaches back into the storyline of scripture to Adam. How from one man, God made the nations. He determined that we would exist and when we would exist and what boundaries would be drawn up for our lives. There's something there for us here in 2020, 2021, where we might think, Lord, really this time period, this, this is where you, you placed me? I've talked to people who are afraid and thinking about what, what could be coming down the road and I just try to encourage people, listen, God called you to this time. God knew what boundary lines he dropped for your life, and he put you here for a reason. And so, church, listen, you are here and now for a reason. You are here and now for a reason. 
And God will give us the strength and the grace to face whatever comes our way in his power, in his strength. Will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to speak the truth of his love in the midst of that, in the midst of whatever comes our way? Verse 27, he says, all of these things about God that they should then seek. And the word is literally worship or seek after and desire God and feel their way towards him. Literally to feel around in the dark is the idea behind this. As I read this, I was brought back to my childhood. I remember going on a field trip and experiencing what they called at the time uh, a touch tunnel. Carpet everywhere, uh, pitch black. You're supposed to make your way through this touch tunnel and, and find your way to the end. I hated it. It was horrible. As a kid, I mean, you just smell stinky feet, and you're just bumping into things, getting rug burns. You're just like, is that, oh, my goodness, that's a foot. Uh, please, keep going. And then, you know, with little kids, just, it's just, it's messy. It's, it's gross. Eventually, you make your way to the end of the tunnel, and you see the light. You're like, ah, I made it. That's the picture that came to mind as I thought through the definition of what he's really getting at, this feeling, this this looking around, this feeling around in the dark. Well, that's the state that we're in before the light of Christ comes into our life and and turns everything on. Feeling around. But he says, you might be doing this, and all of this has happened, God drawing boundary lines that you should seek him and worship him and find him because God is not actually very far from you. He might feel very far at times, but he's not very far. And he, he isn't indifferent. He, he might, it might feel like he's indifferent at times. And, and he's not uninvolved. Oh, it might feel like he's uninvolved and he could you know, care less about your life. But he's involved. He cares. It could be put this way. Essentially, I think he's getting at this. That God is the passionate seeker who has made a way for you and I to seek him and to know him. The creator God the sustainer of all life. He is the passionate seeker. Now you might think, you've thought of maybe yourself as a seeker or we think of others as seeking God. God is the passionate seeker who has made a way for you and I to seek him and to know him personally. It's breathtaking. And maybe this is the first time you've really been introduced to God this way. Maybe it's the first time you've slowed down enough to see what scripture actually says about this living God. Or maybe you've needed a reintroduction. That wouldn't surprise me at all. We all have misconceptions. We all grow up with these caricatures of God that need to be exposed and I believe crushed. This is what Paul is doing. He is confronting the idolatry of Athens. It's a bold move. He's bringing clarity. He's holding up the one they say they don't know and he's introducing them to him. He quotes their authors and their poets. This is contextualization at its best. Speaking the language of a culture. Speaking the truth of who God is in a language that can be understood. He identifies with the Athenians. He, he looks for ways that they, they, they have something in common, and so he, he quotes their authors and their poets. Look with me in verse 26. It's, he quotes actually an old, it's actually verse 28. Uh, he quotes an old hymn that was a, uh, sung to, I, I believe, Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, these Stoic poets have said, 
for we are indeed his offspring. And so by quoting their own poets and philosophers, he's showing, all right, listen, I can, I, I can, I can run with, with you. I, I can, I, I'm, I'm learned, I'm studied, I, I know what your philosophers are saying, but, but I want you to see how inconsistent they are. Because if this is what they're saying, if, if this is who we are, we're God's offspring, then how, how does it make sense that the divine would be something formed by us, the art and imagination of man? It doesn't make sense as he stands in a temple dedicated to a God that has been fashioned by man. And he's saying, God, the creator of all, is, is transcendent. He is supreme. He's unmatched in power and splendor. And he's intimate. He's personal and near. And he's made a way for you to know him. Truly. Truly know him. Now, what you're seeing here, I said it, our, our, our misconceptions, our caricatures, kind of these ideas that we've carried with us about who God is, what he's like, they're being confronted. We might look at these caricatures, these, these misconceptions of ours, and we, we've been holding on to them maybe since childhood. Maybe we've, we've kind of felt God is just unloving, uninvolved, indifferent. But then we see what is true here in Scripture, and we say, but this is how I've felt this is what I've experienced. I've, I've been hurt in the past by people maybe who uh, said they followed you and lived for you. And so we have these misconceptions, right? These, this distortion. And then, and then we have what is true. God is calling you to faith to believe what is true of him. Not only to believe it, but to live in response to it. And that's where he goes next, that there's this deeply personal invitation so he's calling you to know him, but it has to be on his terms. Look with me in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in verse 30, Paul is basically saying, okay, enough, enough of this ignoring God. He's commanding, and, and by the way, this, this God I'm speaking of, he can do that. He can, he can do all the commanding he, he wants to do. He's commanding all people everywhere to repent. Now that word repent needs to be looked up. I need to look up words like repent again and again and again. I'm familiar with the word. It's, it's healthy and helpful for us to slow down and look up words that we might be overly familiar with. But this, this call, this, this call to repentance is really a, a deeply personal invitation. What does the word mean? The word means to turn away and to turn to. So shake yourself free from this idolatry Shake yourself free from these misconceptions. Shake yourself free from this, these caricatures that you've carried for far too long and turn to the living God and it involves total life change. And faith is necessary. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You must have faith in order to walk in repentance, to turn away from idols and turn to the living God. It involves total life change. But this is what God is calling everyone everywhere to. And so you're included in that. You're included in that. I'm included in that. There's personal invitation here, though. 
If we turn away from what is false and turn to what is true, what's he inviting us into? Something more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus is the promise, the guarantee that God is going to right every wrong, that God is going to bring justice and peace, that he's going to judge the world. Now, for the follower of Jesus, this is very comforting. This brings such sweet assurance that that Jesus is going to right every wrong, that Jesus is going to bring justice. Oh, all the the, the brokenness that we see, all the injustice, it hurts to see it and to to be a part of it, and and it grieves our hearts, and it's heavy, and we're living in it. We're living in the in-between. I mean, this already not yet. We've received the the truth of who Jesus is. We've bowed to his lordship, and we live in his kingdom, uh, and, and we've become new creations in Christ Jesus, but we know there's a day when all things will be made new, and so we live in the tension. We live in the in between and we see all the junk around us and the brokenness and we say how long lord until until that day and so for the christian we we have this eager anticipation for what will be in christ righting every wrong judgment is coming it's set in motion there is a fixed time for this to happen and you might openly defy or deny the God of the Bible here today, but there is a day coming where you will have to give an account. And Paul stood before the greatest philosophical council of his day, and that's what he said. And, and that's what I'm saying to you today. And that should motivate us. That should motivate you. The resurrection of Jesus, it's a guarantee, a promise of this coming judgment but it's also a guarantee, a promise of certain forgiveness. Absolute forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And so as he speaks of the resurrection, well, it gets their attention, as it always does get our attention. It produced a response in his hearers. Some mocked him. This is absurd, absolutely ridiculous. This is his inferior thinking that the body might be resurrected Others said, we want to hear you again on this. And some take him up on this personal invitation, including Dionysius and Damaris, Dionysius being one of the leaders in the Areopagus, and this woman named Damaris, and others. And it seems insignificant, the response to his preaching. And some would say, this was a failure. Paul kind of left with his head down. I don't think that's the case at all. I think wherever there are those who put their faith and hope and trust in the risen Lord, who look to the one true God and find hope and joy and salvation and rescue, that, that is beautiful. And this, these, some, some who followed, some who believed, like a spark. It's all the spark that's necessary for the blazing fire that's coming. The blazing fire of more who would put their faith and hope in Christ in the midst of, of a city just littered with idolatry. And so between being misunderstood by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and being mocked in, the, in front of the Areopagus, Paul was given this beautiful platform to introduce his hearers to the living God, and he was faithful. Church, will we be faithful? We might, no, we will be misunderstood, and called names, 
dismissed. We will be mocked and laughed at. But will we be faithful when we're given the platform, when it just makes sense to bring the person we're in front of face-to-face with the living God that we've come to know, that we make that introduction? Where will we start when God is a generic word and truth is determined by the individual? When it seems like the person we're speaking with, friend, neighbor, coworker, man, they've heard it all before. When we hear, oh, there are many ways to God. It, it doesn't matter which path you choose. Or, or when we hear, you can't know anything with absolute certainty. Or, I'll do what feels right to me. In that moment, will we introduce them to the God who made the world and everything in it? Who is passionately seeking them and has made a way for them to know him? Who invites them, here and now, into a deeply personal relationship through the resurrection of Jesus. It's a much-needed introduction, church. And it's one that we are given the privilege to do. God is the passionate seeker. He has made a way for you to seek him and to know him. Will you let these truths just blow up, just crush any caricature or misconception you've been carrying around for far too long about God? Will you let those truths just crush those, cons- those misconceptions? Let's pray. God, we want to see you for who you are. We, we do. We want to see you for who you are, and we want to invite others to do the same. We pray that you would help us to see and feel. We pray that you would help us to see the spiritual darkness of our city, the idolatry of our city, and that we would feel sad and upset and provoked by it, but that it would lead us to do something, to do something about it that we would take others by the hand and and show them who you are. For those who who have questions, we'd we'd patiently sit with them and, and answer questions, that we'd wrestle, that we'd listen to objections, that we'd not be afraid of what others embrace, but that we'd also not be afraid to show them who you are and what it means for their lives here, now, and forever. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what we know of you and your love and grace through Christ, your son. Thank you for that, how that has changed our lives forever. Would you keep us now from embracing the misconceptions and these ugly caricatures? And would you help us to hold on to what is true of you and to be faithful to introduce others to who you are? In Christ's name.